This is Comic Dragons, episode 498, A Conversation with J.K. Woodward. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 498. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and today we're, con- we're having a conversation with J.K. Woodward. He's an acclaimed artist. He's worked on titles such as Fallen Angel, uh, Star Trek City on the Edge of Forever, and Star Trek Mirror Broken. I don't know why every time I talk about that title, I always forget the uh, the sequence of whether it's Broken Mirror or Mirror Broken. I try to think, what sounds like the least likely? Um, actually, in the conversation with JK, I erroneously um, bring up the, that title and call it the wrong thing, and he's like, never heard of it. I'm like, shit. <laughs> Because I keep saying it wrong. I was talking about it on the weekend. I was talking to my brother-in-law, Paul, saying, you've got to read this book. It's fantastic. And unfortunately, he, had no, he hadn't read it yet, or he had a vague idea of it. But I kept screwing up the name. And I'm like, you're never going to be able to find it if you go based on me because I keep naming it wrong, which is terrible. Uh, this was a fantastic conversation. We had a really good time talking to JK about his art, uh, really going de- a deep dive on um, some of the influences in his art and how he kind of does this amazing artwork. Uh, in the background, I apologize as my son's a little bit extra loud today. Uh, thankfully, he's not. you will not hear him during the actual conversation with JK. Um, so it's a, I found it a really interesting and enjoyable conversation. We're going to try and have JK back on the show uh, when the current series is over and hopefully have the writers of that book on as well. Um, but yeah, this was, a, this was a really enjoyable conversation. Uh, next week, um, we're actually taking a week off. So... I guess this episode's going up on, I think, the 31st of July. Uh, next episode... Probably be a week from now, uh, first couple of days of August. Uh, that'll be a, a reviews episode that'll have two weeks worth of comics. Uh, then episode 500 will come out on August 12th, which is the fifth year anniversary of the show. Um, after that, um, I think the week later, we have a conversation with Justin Ponser, which was a lot of fun. Uh, then we're going to have, I believe, a Comic Shenanigans on Vacation episode. Uh, we have upcoming episodes with uh, listener Tim Riley talking about. Uh, Iron Man Heroes Return. We have conversations coming up in the next few months with Tom Beeland. Um, a bunch of others we're just finalizing details on now. Howard Mackey's going to come back on the show at the end of September. Uh, we're working on getting, um, um, oh, what's his name, Richard Eisenhoff on the show, which I'm really excited about. Um, so some really interesting stuff coming down the line. Um, we'll probably have uh, a couple more movie review episodes uh, in the latter part of this year. Obviously, there's Justice League, there's Thor, um, there's also uh, the new Star Wars movie, and then I believe, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get people to go see it, but there's the William Marston movie, which looks really interesting, and there's uh, also the new Kingsman movie, which I might be seeing as well. Uh, Todd, uh, my neighbor who's been on previous episodes, he was like, you haven't seen Kingsman? I'm like, I know, I know, this makes me terrible. He's like, we should see it, and we could talk about it on the podcast. I'm like, that ah, sounds like a, not a bad idea. So, that's some stuff to look forward to. So, without further ado, I'm going to start rambling, but you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Without further ado, let's go right into the conversation with J.K. Woodward. J.K., welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So your, your, your current project, I really want to talk to you about uh, the Broken Mirror. What is it like working... Never heard of it. <laughs> Never heard of it? <laughs> Never heard of it. What is this? Or sorry, is it Mirror Broken? I'm already... Oh my god, how am I already forgetting the name of this title? <laughs> mirror Broken. Oh my yes, god, uh, that is wrong. Mirror Broken. Sorry, I... You know, broken I, Mirror was a episode name for, I think, one of the Deep Space Nine ones. Okay. Or it was, it was already used. That's, okay, so yeah. you're, you're giving me an out so that there's somehow an explanation for my forgetfulness. 
<laughs> so, okay, so you're working on Star Trek The Next Generation, Mirror Broken. Fantastic book. How did you first get tapped to kind of do this? Obviously, you're no stranger to Star Trek. You've done a, a, a few different Star Trek series, but what about this one kind of grabbed you? Uh, well, it, it actually, it all started uh, for a project I was doing um, directly for CBS. It wasn't comic book related at all. Um, and they were putting together a style guide for um, a new line of products coming out for specifically Mirror Universe, which is something they hadn't done before. Hmm. Um and of course, there's except for some novelizations, there's nothing for um, for the next generation. So um, I offered to like, do some designs and um, come up with a with a look for that. And um, uh, I, I got tapped to do basically illustrations for a style guide, so that we'd have a look for what the mirror universe would look like in the next generation. And I was talking to uh, John Van Sitters, who is the president over there at uh, at CBS uh, Consumer Products, and I was saying, well. This would be a great comic <laughs> because while I was designing the characters, I'm, I'm coming up with backstories in my head and thinking, "Wow, this would be a great story." <laughs> um, so I just said, "You know, we should get uh, the band back together, meaning the Tipton brothers and myself, and uh, and do another miniseries." And uh, basically, took that to uh, IDW, and uh, off we went. Now, were they, I guess, immediately receptive of the idea, or thought it was a pretty cool concept? Oh, yeah, yeah, and and the thing is, if CBS likes it and they they own the rights to Star Trek, then you know IDW will find a way to like it. I think. <laughs> um, but uh, but they they I mean yeah I think everybody everybody loved the idea anyways, and um, you know we we all love the idea. The important thing is 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 the Tiptons and I uh, both love the idea. The president of CBS loved the idea. Sarah immediately loved the idea. The only thing we were unsure of is would how how it would be received by the general public, and, and we found out on um, Free Comic Book Day that um, you know this is something everybody seemed to like, and it was it was a big question at first. We're like because we're turning these characters upside down, and we're thinking like you know they're either going to love it or they're going to hate it, you know, or hate <laughs> us. So I, you know I half expected to get lynched for it, but so far no lynching. So far no. Um, most of, you know, you, you, you try to stay away from too much of, of the chatter, but of course when I first came out on Free Comic Book Day, I read every review and I, I, I went to every message board and I was, you know, just, just stalking everybody to see what they were saying and it was overwhelmingly positive, I would say like 99%. Um, so, I mean, and that really doesn't happen that much in comics. Everybody has an opinion. It's You, you know, generally it's about 50-50. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody either loves it or they hate it. There's never a, a you know, middle ground. But uh, we got a lot of love for this, and it's selling really good, and it's still going strong on uh, with issue two coming out, issue three soon to follow. So, yeah, I, I would call it a success, and uh, most importantly, we're, we're having fun. For sure. I mean, it's interesting because it kind of taps into, as you said, like, it's interesting that Next Gen never did a Mirror episode. Like, it's kind of, you almost... Yeah, they came close. Yeah. With, with, like, episodes like Yesterday's Enterprise, mm-hmm. um, and there was this episode, I, I forget what it was called, but where they thought Picard got killed and he was on a pirate ship. It was a two-parter. Yep. Um, they, they were sort of stealing artifacts, archaeological artifacts. I forget the name of the episode, but that also felt very Mirror Universe, because they had the agonizers yep. attached to him that he could press the button, and, and 
Um, and they were all figuring out ways to stab each other in the back to move up. And so that, that felt very mirror universe to me. So they had two almost episodes on TNG, but they never committed to the actual universe the way DS9 eventually did. No. Oh, yeah. DS9 really leaned into it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, when you were kind of de- originally kind of developing these characters for the style guide, did you have kind of carte blanche to kind of do anything that you wanted in terms of the envisioning, obviously, before it kind of went for approval? Or did they give you kind of check marks and certain things to kind of to look for? Oh, no. I mean, it, well, there's, there's, there's different phases of development. And the first phase is just sketch out anything that pops into my head. You know, and then they pick and choose, and that's that's generally how it works. And then we develop from there. Um, other people can throw their ideas in, but usually it's I just throw anything against the wall, see what sticks. Come back and develop the ones that people like, and then there's more notes, and then you develop that a little further. And that's generally how the process goes. So to say I have collage would be accurate at the very beginning stage, and then from there I'm, I'm uh, talking to other people about what we should do. Now, part of the the uniform idea was nothing really that original. We were just developing something that had already been established in uh, Mirror Mirror from from uh, the original series. Uh, you know, the sleeveless and the sashes and everything. Um, and actually, a funny story is, there was a, um, a Captain Picard Next Generation action figure, 12-inch. I think it was. It might have been Amigo or something. I'm not sure. It was, but uh, it was at the offices of CBS, and it was... Uh, uh, John Van Sittis modded, modded it <laughs> to look like a mirror universe. So he took the sleeves off. He got a sash from a Dark Phoenix action figure and attached to it. Huh. Um, and kind of that's that was kind of the starting point uh, that I went off. The only changes I made is I I kind of um, kind of did a negative of the uniform. So in other words, instead of having the red, sh- you know, it's the red uniform instead of being red with black stripes on top or black accents, it was all black. Mm. With a red accent and a red sash, or a gold sash, or whatever your, um, or a blue sash, whatever your rank was. So I kind of did, kind of what John Byrne did to the Fantastic Four when he kind of made negative their, did the opposites with their uniforms. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Once you meant the minute you mentioned the Dark Phoenix sash, and I'm looking at the cover to number two, I'm like, of course that's what it looks like. It's like a, it's like everything a, but the little phoenix clasp holding it together. Exactly, but like until you mention it, like I, I couldn't, I never really put that together. But the minute you mention, I'm like, of course that's what it looks like. Like it's such a, it's such a, as you said, it's kind of a, it's very much a, a design that makes sense for the universe. But it's an interesting kind of cribbing of a design that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a question: yes. What what was it about Jordy um, that you kind of went with really small? with uh, what he's wearing over his eyes as opposed to something kind of bulkier that we kind of saw in the original series, or TNG, I should say. I wanted something that looked somehow a little more creepy, a little menacing. Um, You know, just the the visor just didn't look mirror universe mean, Mm. you know. Um, (laughs) uh, first, First, I should say this. When I first designed Geordi, um, this this mirror universe is a world of, of, of fascism. It's a world of might makes right. It's a world where they're not hindered by morality in any in any sense. So I made Jordy originally have eyes because I figured, you know, um, 
this Dr. Frankenstein medicine would have figured that out at the mm. expense of many lives, mm. you know, or he, he would have, you know, so I, I thought it was more of like, like a clone eyes and I gave him kind of weird looking eyes and thought, like, let's try this out, see how this works, you know, <laughs> to make him look a little monstrous. But also, what I remember in LeVar Burton said in an interview, he always felt hindered because he does a lot of his acting with his eyes. So he had to kind of relearn how to act without his eyes. And I thought, well, here's a perfect opportunity to get more um, expressive with LeVar Burton's face by taking some of that visor away from him. Uh, and that was the original idea of having actual eyes. But when they said, no, the visor's too iconic, you have to have some kind of a visor. Uh, I came up with something a little smaller so we could still see, you know, in between. So you can still see, you know, the, the expression at least when he's angry or when he's surprised still see a little bit of the brow in between mm-hmm. and it, it does help all, it makes him a little more expressive but also just I just wanted it to look kind of badass I, I wanted a, a you know creepy mole man vibe well is that why he's also bald then to kind of add him that little bit more menacing and a little bit more yeah. age to him I, I, I feel like like fully shaved is meaner looking uh, <laughs> stronger looking you know I mean that's we, we that's why they uh, they breed dogs to have short hair somehow it's they makes them meaner <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I thought I, I got to give him a new look and I tried a bunch of different hairstyles and just, just wasn't looking like he wasn't looking bad enough, you know? So I just, yeah, I gave him uh, the mustache and the shaved head and it just turns out that's kind of his look now. He has actually very, sh- he's not shaved, clean shaven, but he's got uh, very short cropped hair mm-hmm. and a mustache. And that was totally unintentionally, but I was in designing a new look. I actually ended up you know, creating LeVar Burton's look now. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, at the, on the cover for issue number three, we see uh, what Wesley looks like in this kind of, in this mirror universe. Um, and he kind of looks a little oh, yeah. more punk rocker with the hair. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was fully intentional. That was, um, actually, um, and I'll, I'll give you the JPEG if you want to put it on your website or something, but I did 10 different designs, I think, for, for Wesley. Oh, really? And, yeah, I, I tried a bunch of them. Uh, just trying to make him look mirror universe, you know. Um, and ultimately, yeah, I think it was John Van Sitters at CBS that said, uh, you know, I, think, I like the spiked hair. I think he should have spiked hair, uh, which was fine with me because I'm an old punk rocker, like the old 1977 punk rocker. So I gave him total like Johnny Rotten hair. <laughs> um, but I also gave him like the sort of 80s fashions because if you look at him, it almost looks like he's wearing like a, a you know, a a jacket with pins on it and uh, a bondage belt and, you know, just all the things you would see punk rockers wearing in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Except I just starfleeted it out and made it look more 24th century so that, you know, it resembles, like, if you know that fashion, you'll look at it and say, yeah, that reminds me of it, but it doesn't look like he's dressed 1980s style because that would be ridiculous in the century. <laughs> but I had a lot of fun creating the kind of uh, Wesley I'd want to hang out with. Mm. <laughs> Which, uh, but that's not necessarily his personality. It was just his look. Yeah. His personality was actually developed by the Tiptons, and, and they came up with some brilliant stuff, but I don't want to spoil anything because that's an issue three uh, thing. Okay. Um, which of the redesigns did you kind of have the most fun with or uh, maybe surprised you the most in terms of how much you ended up enjoying illustrating it? Easily data. Um, but when I was developing data, I was trying to think, <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm giving a lot away here, but... When you're designing a mirror universe character, you're trying to figure out either um, uh, something to do with their hair, facial hair, 
or you got to give them an eye patch in some way. <laughs> and so I, I'm trying to find creative ways to give people an eye, eye patches without giving them an eye patch. It's like, in other words, Riker has a scar and, and one eye is kind of clouded over from the damage, and he just doesn't even bother wearing an eye patch. With Data, I thought, you know, what, what can I do with him? And I thought, oh, Borg parts. He'll have a you know a Borg ocular implant that he can change out with a regular eye whenever he wants. Um, and then it just turned into, well, why stop there? He would uh, probably be experimenting with Borg nanites uh, and reprogram them so they, they can interact with his positronic uh, system. And, you know, just started coming up with backstory and going, like, Data would definitely mess with Borg parts. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and then in thinking about that, I would be, you know, how would he do that, though? Well, easy. The Borg aren't a problem in this universe. They were wiped out. <laughs> so Data's like, he's, he's, not, he's not vulnerable to the to the collective because, you know, given the opportunity to wipe out the Borg, example, Iborg with, with the Hugh character, yep. they wouldn't struggle with the morality of that. They would have done it, you know, so any chance they'd get. Or, you know, there's also nothing's been written yet, so we could have just say, you know, that uh, they had a chance meeting with the Borg, but the Borg haven't really found them yet, haven't been to the sector. Maybe there was another way he got the Borg parts. But my, my theory is, and we haven't gone into this, Data, Data stole Borg parts because after defeating the board. And um, that just makes him fun to draw because there, he doesn't have to look the same ever. He's constantly messing with himself. He's mm-hmm. constantly coming up with better ways, creating a better body for himself. Um, his obsession with humanity is the same in this universe, but the lessons he learns from humanity are different in this universe. So in trying to be more human, he just tries to be stronger because that's what humans are obsessed with here, mm-hmm. or more successful or, or more powerful or more... Uh, more money or what, what, whatever um, whatever the mirror universe happens to represent he's just getting the wrong message and being that kind of human so very much a nature versus nurture so he's been nurtured by this kind of malevolent society so he's going to become more like that it's almost you know it, it, I, I hesitate to use the word malevolent with mirror universe as much as just they're kind of like us mm. <laughs> You know, because we get so we get so used to the Roddenberry dream, and then then when we see in the Star Trek universe people that kind of remind of us, it just looks horrible. But you know, it's kind of the way we live. We're always like trying to look for a way to move up and at, at somebody's expense. I mean, we don't literally stab people in the back, but that's kind of <laughs> you know how many times I've heard you just you know I said that can't do that. That's not right. Oh come on, it's just business, mm-hmm. and people kind of justify immoral acts. And that's all the mirror universe really is, is they just haven't been enlightened, but they're not necessarily evil. They're just doing what they think they have to do to survive. And it's just much more... I would use the word savage before malevolent. malevolent. I, I, you're probably... Yeah, that's probably more accurate. I mean, that being said, I mean, Picard just wants to go work out and he almost gets murdered. Yeah, yeah, because just that's... It's like a Klingon ship. Um, these, I always tell people that the mirror universe, they're more like Klingons, because that's simply how you move up. Mm. <laughs> you kill the guy in front of you. Now, Klingons have rules for this sort of thing. You don't just, because it would be chaos if you just kill people all the time. The mirror universe doesn't seem to have those rules. That's just how you move up. You can, you know, sneak up and stab somebody in the back where that would never be acceptable on a Klingon ship. But the idea of moving up through killing the person in front of you is is a, a very Klingon idea. And yeah, it's, it's simply the way their societies run. They accept it. It's simply the way their militaries run, anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody's nobody questions it, you know. And, and um, if we do a sequel, what I'd love to do is maybe maybe we'll get somebody, you know, 
the best stories are when they cross over. We'll get somebody from the actual universe to come and explain to them that this is really screwed up, what you guys are doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But uh, it's nice to actually play in this universe and have the idea that they just accept this reality, this is the way it is. And I, I still think it feels much more familiar to what we're used to seeing, unfortunately. You know? Which um, which character and their, kind of, and their mirror parallel would you most want to see kind of meet each other, just to see the juxtaposition between the two? Well, it's it's nobody that's in the story right now, um, but the untold story is the idea that you know Spock was in charge for a while. That's what we left from um, left off on a mirror mirror. Uh, somehow deposed, and somebody else took over, and the universe is taking a, a vicious stance against because you don't see any evidence of any of those reforms that they talked about at the end of Mirror Universe. Mm -hmm. So I would love to discover that Spock is maybe part leading a resistance, much the way he led a revolution on on, uh, Romulus in in, the... Reunification? uh, I think it was redemption. Yes, yes. Um, So I I would love to do like almost a parallel of that and show that character in this universe, the, uh, the older Spock, and I would just love to have Spock Prime cross over to this universe and meet himself. Hmm, that's pretty cool, actually. You know, yeah, that would be a great adventure. The, the, the cool thing about that is people would be like, Spock's alive! You know, because I'm, I'm guessing he would have faked his death or something. Nobody's talking about him anyways. So, you know, when, when Spock Prime comes in, then there could be a, you know, like a, a, a identity mix-up, and he gets himself immediately in trouble because <laughs> they think it's not who he is. And just start the story from there. I'm not, I'm not the writer. The Tiptons can figure that out, but that's the story I would love to tell since I was asked. <laughs> Which, um, of the TNG cast, which one do you find is the most challenging to kind of capture their likeness and uh, kind of portray it on the page? Huh. At this point, I'd probably have to say Jordy, um, only because everything that, he's the most different in this, and everything that was iconic about him has changed. Hmm. Um, so just, just the, just the mere fact that we add a mustache and shave his head makes him look like a different person. So I can't rely on, especially for the far away shots, we don't get much face detail. It, you, you can't rely on the, the visor to say that's Jordy, you know? Um, so it's hard to make him, you got to get the likeness perfect because you don't have help with hair and, 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 and visor to make it look like him. So I, I probably struggle with him the most. Mm-hmm. Brahms isn't. We got, we got uh, Brahms in this too. If you read the second issue, you see she was in there. Mm-hmm. She's also really hard. She's really hard to capture because her face looks different from every angle. I can't explain it. <laughs> I'm watching the episodes over and over again and just can't seem to get a feel for what makes her look like her. Hmm. So, no. and, and those two are always in scenes together. It drives me nuts when I get to those pages. <laughs> um, with the. Uh with the physicality of the Picard character, is that a lot of fun to kind of be able to draw a very against type version of Picard? I mean, we're used to him being very much, you know, the kind of the philosopher captain, more more or less, not really the um, the physical captain. And here, you got him extremely physical. What is it like to kind of bring that raw physicality to a character like this? Uh, well, it's interesting. First off, he's not. Um, they don't show him on the show being a physical character but clearly uh patrick stewart is because he was in phenomenal shape during the you know uh shooting of these episodes and actually if you look at first contact the end scene he's sleeveless and climbing a, a, a cable hmm. and you can see the the guy 
he, he's not quite as uh, built as the, the character I'm drawing, but he's not that far away. Um, so it was nice to kind of show that aspect of him that I always felt was there. I felt like he probably worked out. You know, they just never show it. They always show him fencing or playing squash or something. That's true. But, I mean, he, he had to have been doing curls or at least push-ups or pull-ups or something. Um, and I guess we do know that, in, you know, in his youth he was more reckless because there is that episode where, you know, he get, gets the heart injury in the past, right? So, I mean... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of him They showed in, us that tapestry, I think, was the episode, right? I think so, something like that. So, I mean, so the, obviously there there is that kind of piece to him that long before he kind of learned to temper some of that he was someone who i did act out but then learned kind of a, his lesson and i guess this version of that picard just never learned that lesson because he didn't have to yeah well there, there is a wisdom to him though, though he's not um he's he's buff he works out uh physicality is very important in this universe obviously um being a good soldier in any ways is valuable in this universe um, but he's still a tacticianer. He's still got a, a quiet, cool, a calm to him. He's not like um, Wolverine or something, charging and berserking, always looking for a fight. Mm-hmm. He will. He will find a way to win more than find a way to fight. So he's he's not um, he's not Klingon in that sense, you know. Uh, so there's still a little of the old Picard in there. It's just a little more subtle. Um, I wouldn't say because the character that you're referring to, his past character was reckless and kind of devil may care. True. I don't think this guy's like that. You know, I, I think he's willing to do things uh, that the Prime Universe Picard would never do. He's willing. He d- he's not as hindered by reality, but he is uh, by morality rather. But he is. Um, he is every bit as thoughtful in in some sense. Just doesn't put it to use with. The, um, diplomacy <laughs> as much as he does with you know tactics what was it like portraying the fight between him and and, uh, and Riker I mean that was just a really riveting battle but it also just it felt very like where were, what was your kind of your model work there because it looked really on point like it felt like I really was watching these two actors that I've watched numerous times actually have a throwdown fight oh thanks um, it was it was obviously it was drawn by me um, so there's a contribution there, but I think I got to give credit to, and I think I don't, it was the Tipton brothers. It was in the writing. Um, the suplex was actually in the script. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I believe it was, I think, I think Scott was prime on that scene. So I, I think, I think it was mostly him, but I'll, um, but I'll give you know credit to the writers for that. And, uh, I know I talked to Scott about it and he was like, what I'm going for here. And I knew before he even said it was the, the scene in They Live, the fight scene in the alleyway that goes on for, you know, like, when is this going to be over? Like, every time every time they get knocked down, you're like, somebody's, okay, somebody's going to stay down, they're going to walk away, but they keep getting back up and they keep fighting. And if we had more pages, we would have probably expressed that even longer, but, we you know, we had to do it in four pages. But we tried to get the idea of, like, they're just, they're both just hurting. They're both just beating the hell out of each other and and, and you keep waiting for it to be over and they just two stubborn men <laughs> and they clear the bar in the end yes they did except and I'll, I'll, I'll reveal this that wasn't mourn behind the bar but that was one of his species okay um, <laughs> and if you look at the last panel everybody's cleared the bar except mourn you see him ducking behind the bar you just see like his eyes just oh, above yeah. the bar it's really subtle <laughs> I had never noticed that before so while the fight broke out and everybody was running he was just kind of hiding behind the bar 
<laughs> that was my that was my little joke to see. And nobody's uh, said anything if they've noticed so far, but. Now with the with the bar scene and you have like a lot of the patrons obviously as they're in the bar and then fleeing the bar. Did you kind of did, was there a direction in the script about what alien races you would feature, or was that you kind of picking out kind of your favorites that from Star Trek lore? Um, I don't think in this scene there was any specifics. I know Nosikins weren't in there because I actually asked. I mean, would you think that would be okay to put Nosikins? Because we haven't really talked about what aliens were wearing in this universe. But I figured the, the the Terran Empire has given up all their territories and they are sort of stuck in their own solar system. Any any aliens that were still around after that were going to be, if not enslaved, you know, they were going to be working class. Mm. And they, they, were, they were living at the bad part of Mars there, and that's what that whole bar was. It was an alien bar. Like, mo- humans don't generally go there. They go to the nice part with the big spires and the stuff you saw earlier, like Jordy's apartment. Um, and this is sort of a, a seedier area. And, and I think what the script said was it's mostly all aliens, and I just des- designed what would look kind of like a bland, um, proletariat-looking kind of worker jumpsuit for all these aliens, and that's what they're wearing. But specifics, I don't think so. I think maybe Orions were mentioned, but they're always in bars. Yes, they There's are. always an Orion. <laughs> um, and and Bolians were mentioned earlier, so I think maybe that's why I put Bolians in there. And then the Noskins I put in there just to make it look a little seedier. When you were, de- but yeah, I, I, I I'd have to look at the script to know for sure. But I, I know Bolians and and um, and Orions were brought up earlier in the script, if not specifically for this scene. Mm-hmm. The cat guy I added, I think, oh, or yeah. the dog. <laughs> Uh, I, put, I know I put a cat guy and a dog guy in there, cause, and I forget the name of the dog guy's race, but it was in like the first season of uh, TNG, mm-hmm. where they brought him on with the lizard people. Remember those dog people? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of good memories of uh, the first season, but... Uh... Yeah, it's it's like around third season I start thinking about. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I thought was interesting about the free comic book day issue is that you guys got rid of Yara pretty fast. Was that kind of a meta commentary on the character? Like she's always meant to die early. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, that's the Tiptons as well. Um, but I imagine, I mean, they they could answer this better than me because they came up with it. But I imagine, yeah, I imagine that's exactly what it was. We wanted to show, we wanted to show who Barkley was, and we want um, we wanted sort of a data's day with him. Mm. Remember that episode, Data Take? So we wanted somebody to narrate to take you through this universe so you could just quickly introduce you to it and also at the same time tell who he was. Um, so there was there was obviously a red herring and a, and a misdirection. You didn't know what was going to happen, who he was going to kill. You knew he was going to kill somebody. Um, and we, we, I guess they tried to make it feel like it was going to be Picard, and I think it worked. Mm. Like it looked like he was going to take out Picard, and then he ends up taking out... Um, uh, taking over, and I think it was just somebody had to die, and we're kind of used to her dying at this point. Because <laughs> I mean, she died twice. She already died twice in the regular universe in two different times. It's interesting because if you if you go back and watch that first season, and whenever she brings up her backstory, it kind of feels like she's already almost a mirror version of a character. Like she's already kind yeah. of this character who kind of believes in strength because of the background that she has, unlike a lot of the original you know, TNG crew. 
Like, yeah, exactly. And, and I actually struggled with that is how, how do I make and, and I had already used the scar on Riker who was coming up. But I was like, how do I make her? How do I make a meaner version of of somebody who had been through what she'd been through? Mm-hmm. You know, like I couldn't figure out how to make a, a mirror universe of her. And I went to um, I went to what they did with yesterday's Enterprise, which is basically they greased up her hair and combed it back. Yep. Looks a little more military. I also gave her sort of a uh, Ronda Rousey build. I buffed mm-hmm. her up a little bit. Um, but basically, yeah, like I, I was thinking the same thing when we brought this character in is what's going to make her mirror universe that, that her life in the other universe didn't already do. Mm-hmm. There's actually and, well, a shot in the free comic book day issue where uh, she's walking away and I think Picard's like saying goodbye to her. It's right before she dies. And just in that one shot, I don't know why, but it really reminds me of the current kind of version of Captain Marvel uh, with Carol Danvers because she's kind of walking away. She has the sash. And there's just something about the way she's walking and the, the profile you have as she's kind of looking back that it really reminded me of Captain Marvel, and I, I don't really know why. Oh, yeah, well, probably a, a lot of it's got to be the build and, uh, and the sash. I guess so, yeah. I guess that's And, and, and plus, the hairstyle. Yeah, it's kind of her current She kind of does look like that. Yeah, yeah I, it's just interesting. I'm just looking at that panel. I'm like, yeah, that totally looks like that. Uh, maybe I should be drawing that then. <laughs> Um, what was the behind the decision to have Barkley kill her in that manner, like with the kind of the knife in the back, or is it just that made sense for this version of the character? Of course, that's how he would do it. Yeah. Um, again, the, uh, the Tiptons could speak better for this, but um, from what I, from what we talked about, I would say um, probably we wanted to show Barkley as a bit of a sociopath. In other words, in this universe. We try to keep a lot of similarities. We try to make these the same characters who are altered by their circumstances. So Barkley might still be a little socially awkward, but in a little bit more of a sociopathic way. And he he, he wouldn't be obsessed with the idea of, of, you know, mortal combat with somebody. He'd just do what's easiest to get the job done. Mm-hmm. So that was that was probably what that was about. Um, and this whole thing was also a test of loyalty from the captain to see who he could trust. True. And that was another thing we were trying to express. Like, this is this is the kind of universe you live in. When this is the kind of thing you have to do. Um, but yeah, that was that's that's my best guess. We wanted to show who Barkley is and what he's capable of, and that, that's probably the best way to do it. As far as knives go, that's a no-brainer because this is the mirror universe, and everybody carries those daggers around with them, yeah. either in their boot or in their sash. So, how did you uh, end up kind of settling on the on the color palette that you've designed for this particular series? Um, it's kind of like the the uh, colors of the actual uniform is denoting that their rank kind of pop, but everything else is a little bit starker. Uh, was that kind of by design, or what were you going for with your overall color approach? Oh, absolutely. Uh, by issue two, I started just working in ink wash and having somebody colorize it rather than paint. So that that's all um, uh, Charlie, uh, blanking on his last name, Kirchhoff. So, so issue two on is all his uh, color theory, but Okay. For issue zero and one, that was all me. Um, and the idea was uh, they were on a rust bucket. They were on the Stargazer that was way past its prime because we're st- we're maybe season three or four of Next Generation as far as timeline goes here. But they're still on the Stargazer because yeah. they're basically the, the Terran Empire's poor. They're, they, the resources they have are restricted to just one solar system. They've lost all the other systems, all the other territories they've had. Um, so they had to make do with what they had. Uh, another thing too is is with with next generation. One of the things I noticed right away is there it was comfortable. It was warm colors. It was beiges and and, and uh, you know uh, stained wood 
on the bridge. You know, it, it had a, it, it, it looked like a nice hotel. And um, <laughs> we didn't want to have that for the mirror universe. They wouldn't, they're not going to try to make you feel comfortable. This is a military ship. Again, I don't want to come back to Klingons, but you go, you look at a Klingon ship, it's all, it's rusted iron. It looks like it's made out of, you know, mm-hmm. and, and for here, I wanted the same thing, except maybe brushed steel. You know, and that was the idea. They're not gonna. They're not gonna color everything up. They're not gonna worry about accents, except for the you know the yellow piping that you see in the hallways, that you see on everything because it's part of their logo. Yeah. Uh, but everything else, there's gonna be kind of you know they're they're not they're not trying to make it look pretty. They're just trying to make it work. Well, speaking um, of that, so, with, sorry, go ahead. So yeah, so to, to answer your question more succinctly, I, I tried to desaturate as much as I could and make it look like sort of a grim world that was kind of carved out of metal. What, um, one thing I, I kind of liked and thought was funny, and it kind of speaks to the idea that, you know, they're, they're kind of as basic as they can be in terms of the, as you said, their rust bucket, is the fact that uh, on the bridge they actually have it saying Nav and Helm on it. Like, yeah. Like they like they wouldn't know where these you know where these uh, positions were. Like it's actually kind of on on their um, their instruments. I found quite a funny kind of little addition. And it's all scraped off paint too, like half scraped off. <laughs> um, but that actually came from um, I can't remember the name of the episode, but there was an episode where the Frankies gave Picard the Stargazer as a gift, mm-hmm. and it had that like mind control orb that yeah. they were messing with his head. Um, but the on that set, if you look at it, it was also in bad shape. It was also a rust bucket, like the one in the Mirror Universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does say nav, and you know, it, it does have labels. It has tactical <laughs> above the tactical station, oh. and yeah, it's like trained <laughs> trained Starfleet officers are going to forget where to go. <laughs> I don't never think I've ever noticed that speak. before. But it, yeah, it's there. It's there. It's all covered in rust and 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 grime and everything. But it's there, and. Um, it's stupid. It doesn't make sense, but it somehow looks kind of cool. <laughs> so I I, uh, I kept that in. Well, I guess that speaks to what how what kind of level of research do you do on a project like this when you're using obviously known characters, known kind of backgrounds, you know, in your in your adapting them to this world. What kind of level of research are you doing? Are you how many episodes are you kind of going back and getting a feel for and kind of looking at certain things? It's, it's difficult to say. Uh, I, I would say exhausting research, except I've already done the research over a lifetime. Mm. I mean, I've seen all these episodes and all the movies, like, you know, several times. I can recite most episodes, most movies. I can't remember the titles for some reason, but I can, uh, <laughs> you know, I can I can recite almost every line from every, every episode. I've seen them so many times. Um, so, I'll you know, I'll call to all this just to keep it as accurate as possible. The thing is, with the Mirror Universe, you really don't have to worry if this is not the perfect... Uh, for example, engineering section in, mm. in the Stargazer, we never really saw it. We saw a station that Jody was at, but we never saw actual engineering. We never saw a warp core. Um, so I, I based my engineering on um, Intrepid class, uh, like Voyager's engineering, okay. uh, as a starting point. And then uh, I put in some elements of, of Constitution class because I just figured that's what the Stargazer would be, like an some, somehow it would look like a cross between those two uh, classifications of ships. And I use that to kind of fill in the blanks because it is the mirror universe and nobody can say I'm wrong. I'm inventing it. <laughs> so, um, But the stuff that was already established in the regular universe and on the TV show, I tried to stay as true to that as possible because it's a mirror universe. It's not a totally different universe. It's got to be a reflection of the original. 
and the more you deviate from that, the less. I think what makes it what makes Mirror Universe cool is is how different it is because of how familiar it is. And if you mm-hmm. take away the familiarity, it's going to take away what um, what makes this fun, at least in my opinion. So yeah, I do a lot of research. <laughs> Uh, switching gears before we have to let you go for the day, um, I did want to ask, what was it like working on uh, City on the Edge of Forever? It's an amazing looking book. Um, you really tap into the, you know, the, the the look and the aesthetic of the original series. Uh, what was it like, kind of bringing that to life and being able to actually work on, you know, a story originally by Harlan Ellison? Uh, it, it was a blast. Um, it was nerve wracking at first because when I first heard about it, I had to um, meet Harlan Ellison. Oh, wow. uh, which is something I've always wanted to do, but I was been—I'm scared to death. You know, <laughs> I thought for sure I'd get yelled at. I'd say something wrong and get yelled at. And it's a very Harlan thing to do. Um, it didn't happen. I met him, and it was—it it was a great experience. And we actually, um, over the time, became friends. He, he left himself, uh, made himself very available to me because um, he wanted this to be—you know—he wanted this to be done right. Um, this was very important to him. So. It, uh, you know, along with the Tiptons, we were working a lot with him. He was involved uh, in in the uh, adaption of the scripts with the Tiptons. He was involved with uh, the artwork with me. Um, but it wasn't in a notes kind of annoying way. It was in a fun kind of collaborative way. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't really expect that. And it was I've been a huge Harlan Ellison fan, so it was a huge thrill to do this. And um, and to get the you know to get encouragement from him is is just an amazing experience. Again, something I didn't expect. <laughs> uh, I would say it was probably the most rewarding project I've worked on so far in my life. Uh, it would be hard to ever top that. And um, it was great working in the original series, and it was great trying to uh, capture. Um, the essence of, of what the original series looked like in a comic book. Although the hardest thing to do was not to go big budget on this. In other words, the, I, there's so many things I wanted to do: grand helicopter shots. You know, I, I wanted to, it's a comic book. I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. You know, um, without any budgetary consideration. But then, you know, you got to be careful because that takes you out of it, and it should feel like what if they actually aired this episode? What would it look like? That being said. When they first go down to the planet, I did do one grand helicopter shot of them walking across this large, you know, something you would never see in Star Trek. It was it actually looked like it was shot on location, but it wasn't the Vasquez Rocks, which is the only <laughs> on location they ever shot. It, you know, it was, it was a big wide mountain range shot that you would never really see. And I did that, and I was like, uh, I hope, you know, I hope I can get away with this. And nobody said anything. I think I was the one putting that restriction on me, not anybody else. Um <laughs> But I had a lot of fun, and if you if you get the hardcover version, you'll see what a fan we all are of both Harlan Ellison and Star Trek because we just loaded it up with Easter eggs. So you just almost every other panel you look in the background, there's an Easter egg, and we we did some annotations in in the back of the hardcover that uh, if you didn't catch them all, you can go back there and, and it'll tell you where they are and what we came up with and why. What was it like, kind of? Um, what were the directions from Harlan like in terms of? I mean, obviously, when they go down to the planet um, and they they come to um, the, the, those, the characters that kind of send them back, obviously, it's very different than what we actually saw in the actual TV show. So what was the direction like on what it, what it was actually supposed to look like? Because obviously, that was kind of totally missed and done wrong in the actual show. Well, yeah. Um, 
actually there was a lot of rewrites too so it was almost a, a you know it was a very different script actually to be honest um, but it was it was a much more I would say vast environment than you would imagine Star Trek being because you know, it's shot in a studio with the painted backgrounds or the or the you know the lit green walls that are supposed to be sky you know <laughs> um, but his descriptions he, he described it as kind of silvery so it's it sort of ashy and silvery it looked like it could be snow he described the uh, when he described the the guardians it was um, that was an incredible thing because they're basically like 10 foot tall rock wizard people <laughs> and I would have loved to see that you know and, and that was a lot of fun to create but I mean there was ne- there was never any question of what he wanted um, as far as the physicality it was very clear in, in his script and and the adaption from the Tiptons it was very clear what was supposed to be there um, which tells me that any changes they did on the sets was done intentionally because they either you know it was a budgetary concern or whatever whatever the reason was they they didn't have enough silver paint I don't know <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you look at his script, I know he put a book out in the 90s. I, I recommend people check it out. And, and it has the original script. Or you can just read the comic. That's just as good. But he put out a book with, with um, not only that, a lot of – he aired a lot of dirty laundry about his arguments with Roddenberry and, and correspondence back and forth mm-hmm. in form of letters and with other people. Um, and I think it was just called City on the Edge or wherever the teleplay – you can probably find it on Amazon, but it's a great read. It'll tell you a lot of the history. It'll tell you a lot of the differences. I think it goes through how many times it was rewritten and by who and what contributed, you know, who contributed what. And then um, there are some interviews in there with, with the people who contributed, the, the ones that will still talk to Harlan. Uh, very interesting stuff that I read um, before I even worked on the book. There's a history behind that episode that <laughs> that's actually greater than the episode itself. <laughs> When you design, how did you design the character of, of Beckwith? Because I mean, he's he's new. Is he yeah. not? Like, I, I he's not in the yeah. original script, obviously, because it's very different. So, what did you kind of base the visual of this character on? I just had a vision in my head when I read the script. I'm not. I didn't actually base him on anything. I that's a, a made up face. Um. But I, I can't remember the exact words. I don't have the script in front of me right now. But um, it's, it seemed like he was described as kind of uh, brutish, mm. um, whereas uh, Lebec, the, the person he's dealing to, um, it, you know what? The image I got when I first read it, and for, for right, whether it's right or wrong, better or worse, but was remember the, the uh, Looney Tunes dogs? The, the what are we gonna do today, Butch? What are we gonna shut up? <laughs> Remember from the the cartoons, the big bulldog and the little little yeah. dog that runs around and hangs out with him. You know, th- that was kind of the dynamic I got from those characters. So I just kind of painted kind of human versions of those dogs, I guess. Um. <laughs> you know, it makes a lot of sense when you say it because when I'm looking at the pages, I'm like, "Yep, that's uh, that's totally the vibe here." <laughs> well, and uh, those characters, I don't know if you know this, but um, Harlan Ellison always names the the villains in his stories. Um, after bullies, people used to bully him in school when he was a when he was a little kid. Oh, really? I, so, didn't, I didn't know that. You know, Beckwith and Lebecca are real people he went to elementary school with, I guess. Well, that's funny. What um, 
one thing I, I really liked about how you drew, uh, just in the, the first few pages of that story, was um, how you really imbued the physicality of Lebec as he's coming out of this trance. Like, the body language that you imbue with him, within him during those panels is absolutely fantastic, because even if you took out all the words, you totally know that this guy just had a really bad trip, and now he's having to kind of deal with that. Um, like, that's just really impressive uh, staging for the character. Oh, thanks. Um, that that's from uh, years of doing drugs. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no. All, all kidding aside, and uh, as a teenager, I experimented with LSD, like like a lot of people have. So I I know that uh, that almost catatonic feeling uh, as it's as you're coming off of it, uh, any hallucinogen. So I've seen that face in the mirror before. Uh, one thing uh, my favorite page, and it's a page I still have because I won't sell, though, is the page just before. Well, no, I think it's that exact page. It's the page with the, the melted face, right? The, the three-face yeah, yeah. hallucination. Yeah, I still own that page. I won't sell that one. It's that pretty, it's pretty and the, awesome. uh, the page where Beckwith burns in the, the supernova. I mm. kept that page, too. Nice. Um, one thing I also really liked about it, and I, I don't know how much of this was originally in the script or how much was something that you guys kind of added in, was um, uh, having uh, Rand actually be the one who's like got the gun open, you know, melting the door open. I thought it was really cool because that seems very ahead of its time uh, in terms of you know you have the other men kind of standing aside, and the one who's actually kind of taking essentially a blowtorch to this door is Yeoman Rand. Yeah, and, and the thing is, that makes me wonder if they had gone with that script where Rand had a, a much bigger part, other than bringing coffee to the captain or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, it made me wonder what, what would have been the future for that character, what what would have happened, because this is a first season story. Who knows, you know? Yeah. But of course, you know, there were other reasons that she didn't um, she didn't stay on the show, so, I mean, maybe, maybe it wouldn't have made a difference, but I, I, I think if this episode was going to be earlier in the season. If this this script had come out early in the season, I think we might have had a different Ran um, throughout the first season anyways. I think she would have been a much more dominant character. She maybe even would have been, um, you know, going on away missions instead of just bringing letters to the captain. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I do want to ask, what? how much fun was it to kind of um, have the, the, the pirates kind of on the on the ship when they come back? That might have been the part I was most looking forward to. And I know, uh, I was talking to Scott, I know he was excited about that. Because he, he kept telling me like when the issue was coming up, it's the Space Pirate one, it's the Space Pirate one. <laughs> um, so I, I made sure to put uh, Scott Tipton as one of those Space Pirates. He was the one that got taken out by Spock with the, the nerve pinch. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's very cool. Yeah, I know that. I, mean... I also put my friend Daryl Taylor as, as uh, the red guy with the horn. Oh yeah, it was an alien species I made up just for the for for this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's he's my partner in crime on my my podcast. We do nice. So he's he was also Captain Bertrand in the uh, in the uh, crossover of the Star Trek Doctor Who. Okay, yeah, was, yeah. He was the villain known as the Conduit. That he was Captain Bertrand that got assimilated and be you know that they uh, one of the main characters. He, I, I only mention this because he won't shut up about it. <laughs> Um, a question I, I, I noticed it instantly when I saw it, and I was curious about this. Um, when you had Spock and Kirk uh, running into the 
I guess the, basically the portal that brings them back into the past. Um, the colors that are used, I remember them from, I guess, the is it the poster to Star Trek the movie? I, I know the novelization definitely had those exact colors yep. used. That was very yep. intentional? or That was very intentional. In fact, that was in the script. Uh, now, I think that was a contribution that we got from... Um, the Tiptons. I don't think that was in the the Harlan one, uh, and they actually said that. Think, think uh, the motion picture. Oh, really? Okay. So, yep. So that that was very intentional. Because yeah, that that really stuck out. I mean, especially because everything else there hadn't you hadn't really used a lot of colors, and then suddenly, as they're running towards it, you have this really vivid colors and very specific colors again, and that just kind of stuck out. Because I remember I used to have that novelization as a kid, so I was like, wait a minute, I've totally seen this before. Yeah, it's it's a good way to delineate between the the um, the past and the future too, because that's basically what happened. We went from the colorful future to the very earth toned, um, and again, we're talking color theory, but I'm, I'm a big color theory guy. I I try to keep away from any primary colors while we're in the past. I try to keep it gray and brown, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And um, and I thought that was that was a brilliant way to to snap back to okay, they're on their way home because you can see color again. Yeah. You know, I almost wanted it I almost wanted it to feel a uh, sepia tone almost 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 black and white, you know, in the in the past and then and then you come back to, you know, the land of the bright shirts <laughs> <laughs> and and the and the blue snow giants and everything. Kind of the opposite, um, opposite way to do that. kind of the opposite of Wizard <laughs> of Oz. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, what's interesting about the book, too, is that, I mean, it's basically a period piece, because obviously uh, it's not the 60s anymore, or, or sorry, not even the 60s, earlier than that. So, like, what was it like kind of um, trying to make it very authentic to the original time period that they kind of showed this episode? Um, oh, you're talking when they go back to the 30s, that, that yeah, sorry, stuff? Yeah, the, the 30s, sorry. Yep. I don't know yep. why I said the 60s, um, but yeah, the that's... 30s. <laughs> I just want to be sure we're talking about the same thing because because I did even in the 23rd century in the beginnings I did try to make the hairstyles and everything look like actors from the 60s so that I did it's a period piece either way true but um, the the 30s stuff I did a lot of research um, but also um, a lot of it was already in the script so I mean Harlan grew up in this time even though he was a child so he he knew the era well. And he had a lot of small details, like the, you know, um, and some of them made it into the episode, like milk trucks, you know, horse and buggy milk trucks. Um, the the character selling apples and pencils, that was a common thing. The the, I, the trooper, I fought at Verdun sign, uh, Verdun, I always say Verdun for something. Um, <laughs> but I mean, a lot, yeah, a lot of it was in the script, but I also did my own research. There was a scene where he was, um, where I think Kirk was giving giving Trooper some money, gave him a couple bucks or something, which is a lot of money at that time. Uh, and, you know, I was looking it up just to make sure, I, you know, money changes over the years, and I wanted to make sure I wasn't giving him a dollar from the 1980s. You know, it had to look like it was from the 30s. And I, I did a little research and found out there were, there were uh, silver certificates back then. In fact, it was very specifically to these couple of years, so I made sure it was a silver certificate and it actually says that on the money it looks like a dollar but it says silver certificate on it oh. um so if you look closely you you and and you know money if you're a collector or something you'll pick that up i don't think your average person will but 
it was that kind of attention to detail that that's kind of important to me, and it was it was the kind of thing that uh, Harlan had in the script, so I wanted to make sure I didn't screw anything up. <laughs> you know, but that's part of the fun of doing something like a period piece because you end up uh, learning something at the same time. Well, about an era I didn't really know that much about, and there's a lot of other things I do. Like I tried to put a lot of Easter eggs in there, so I put um, I put a bar in the background named after one of Harlan's short stories. Um, and I put some signs on it, like we serve strange wine because strange wine is one of his books. And I think it was called <laughs> the, the TikTok Club, based on the TikTok man. It, it was a lot of, like I said, Easter eggs. And then I remembered while I was putting that in, oh my god, it's prohibition. So I put chains on it, and, <laughs> and, uh, and I put a sign of uh, the was it Amendment 19? Was it? I, I forget the number, but it was the amendment that was prohibition. So mm-hmm. there's a big sign on it that was saying uh, this this establishment closed due to amendment whatever it was you know and these are the kind of things you got to remember when you're doing a period piece and you can easily forget and slip up oh for sure what was it like illustrating Joan Collins oh great I'm, I'm actually I'm glad you uh, asked that because it, it leads into a funny story I actually sold her one of the original pages oh, really? and, uh, <laughs> yeah I met Joan Collins I'll, I'll, I'll send you pictures of that too if you have a website you want to put it on sure. remind me to send you this stuff that I'm talking about the Wesley design and the Joan Collins pictures. But yeah, I met her and, and I, I was doing a art show at uh, Vegas. I think it was 2015. Uh, if you've ever been at the, the big uh, Trek Con in Vegas, there's a long hallway that goes to the um, where where all the um, the rooms are for you know the uh, panels and stuff that lead to where the, the floor is. And they always have artwork up there. So this time they had mostly my pages from City on the Edge of Forever, and I decided, yeah, I'll just throw some price tags on them. I ended up selling everything. Oh, wow. Um, people were buying them because Shatner was there and Joan Collins were there, and they were just getting them signed um, by them. Uh, so they would buy pages just so they could get something signed, I guess. Uh, and then I was uh, I also had a table on the floor where I was selling books and, and doing signings and stuff. And... and um, my rep came to me and said, somebody just bought a painting. They, they would like to meet you. I was like, oh, sure. He didn't even tell me who. And then I went there, and it was Joan Collins. Oh, my God. And now here's the great part. She bought the page where she takes a spill down the stairs, and Shatner doesn't save her. There's a page where he doesn't want to change. He's not allowed to change the future, and he's tempted to save her, but he doesn't and lets her fall, which is also different from, from what that scene was in the, the actual filmed version. Mm-hmm. And it's just a horrible scene that it just looks painful. She's spilling down the stairs. She, she looks like she just smashed her head on one of the steps, and she gets up, and her hair is all messed in the last panel. That's the page she liked. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I didn't ask her why. I regret it to this day. I, I think um, I like to think it's because she has a sense of humor and she thought it was funny or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's a, a very charming woman. I can't believe how beautiful she is for her age too. Mm-hmm. Wow. She, yeah, it's, yeah. I, you know, I got up close, and she did not look her age one bit. <laughs> wow. What um, What other challenges did you have, kind of illustrating not just her, but also, um, you know, illustrating the characters of Spock and Kirk? I mean, the the um, the emotions you were able to evoke uh, in the Kirk is absolutely fantastic. I mean, um, how the, the the kind of the melancholy, the sadness that is in his face it's it's so authentic. You think that you're looking at you know, actually watching an episode where he actually looks like that way. How do you achieve that? How do you achieve this high well, first off, thanks. accuracy? Thanks for that. Um, actually, with 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 Shatner, it's easy because he's given me so much. There's, mm. you know, you just 
Um, I get that strictly from his acting. So I, I use what he's done as reference, and I, I basically use what expressions he's already given me. So I'm not I'm not breaking any new ground there. I'm not making anything up. Um, he's already he's already done this in some episode probably. Um, the hard part was with Spock and Nimoy because he doesn't play emotions that much. Hmm. And this original script was before. I mean, I think this was written at the time because all the, all the scripts from the first season were written before any filming was done, and they they were using um, a Bible that was based on the pilot. And Spock had emotions. It wasn't established that he was stoic. I think that was kind of changed as they went along. Hmm. Um, you know, obviously before they started filming, but um, so we had Spock getting annoyed. We had Spock getting angry. Uh, we had Spock showing sympathy with his eyes. I, we have that at the, the very last scene where he's, where they're talking about uh, the people who died and the people he's going to miss. And you just kind of see the Spock's feel sorry for his friend, you know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, but that's hard to do with Spock because, um, it, I, I'm free to actually have emotion on this character and Nimoy would always play it. Like you could tell it was in there, but you wouldn't see it on his face. Mm. You know, which is a, which is a hard line to, I guess, kind of kind of walk for him as an actor. But but it, you know, the the point is, I didn't get much in the way of like what what would this look like? What would what would Spock being angry look like? What would mm-hmm. Spock in shock look like? All you really had was the uh, the original pilot uh, where he had the funky hair. Yep, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> And all, all, all you really got was in that one was you didn't get any anger. There was only shock and, and laughter and smiling. Um, so I kind of had to make up expressions for him. And I wanted to do it in a way that at least could kind of pass. Like, for I didn't want to go over the top with it because I, I figured he should still stay a little emotionally stoic or people would it would take people out of the story. Yeah. They, they, they wouldn't know the history that this was before Spock was a stoic character or something. So I didn't want to go too far and have people go, oh, that's not Spock. <laughs> so that was, for me, that was the biggest challenge was, was trying to, to walk that line hmm. to give what Harlan wanted in the script but still keep it so people would understand it. Um, one of the, I guess the, the the last shot of that book where you have the Enterprise kind of speeding away. Um, what's it like actually illustrating the Enterprise? Like actually kind of putting it in motion. Oh, I <laughs> I love that part. I love painting the ships. And and the thing is, your average Star Trek story has about two or three panels of the ships. <laughs> the only the only ship I can't stand painting it's a Cardassian ships. And wouldn't you know it, the one comic, Star Trek comic I did that had a big extensive space scene was all Cardassian ships. And that was uh, issue one of the Mirror Universe. That's right. <laughs> but normally, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Yeah, those Cardassian ships take forever because it's just, um, figuring out the lighting is tough because it's a geometric nightmare. Mm. It's, you know, it's just, there's so many, the panels are all facing different ways. And who designed this? Not, um, a, not an illustrator, I guess. No, no, definitely a sculptor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> definitely a sculptor. Because, yeah, it's so hard to keep track of, like, oh, wait, what is, which way is this panel going? <laughs> um, and you end up spending, like, you know, I, I spend, like, you know, 30 hours on some of those those scenes space. But generally, I love painting ships. I love painting, and I love I love painting um, firefights. I love painting... Um, you know the shields with the with the phasers bouncing off them. Yep. I love I love any any excuse to get the uh, what I do for for the effect of um, 
the phasers bouncing off shields is I actually take a uh, toothbrush and cover it in paint and just do like a, a fine mist splatter, and it kind of gives that that shield uh, static effect. Oh, wow. And any excuse to do that is it's, it's some kind of weird catharsis. I just love <laughs> spilling paint all over my my, my painting. <laughs> How, uh, well, and for these issues, and especially, I guess, now that you're not doing the color work, how long does it actually take you to put an issue to kind of the, to bed or be done to, for it to go on to the next level, next stage? It, it used to take six for full painting, and uh, the book came out earlier than we had planned, so I didn't have any lead time, so now i got to do it in uh, about four and a half weeks for the ink wash. Was that part of the reason why you switched to having it colored by someone else? That's the only reason, yeah. Um, it's amazing. I think very few people, I, as, nobody even came to me and told me they noticed the difference. So I guess it's still doing the job it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it looks a little more inked than it does uh, painted, but it still has that sort of painted look because I'm, I'm painting in like a lot of ink and water, ink wash. Uh, so it still has that realism to it. Um, you'd be amazed how much faster it is just using ink. <laughs> because... <laughs> Um, you know, paint paint can be a pain, especially gouache, um, and you, you constantly got to work with a palette. So you start with your blacks, and then you, you clean your palette, and you add the, you know, the colors you're going to use, um, you know, like maybe all your earth tones, and you do a, a wave of that, and then you go back over it, and you add your uh, blues, and, and it's sort of like this wave of different colors, and, and that just ends up taking a long time. You only do that once with ink gouache. You're just doing the blacks. You know, so it's really, it's almost like cutting it down like one-tenth. Wow. Now, how did you, were you involved in kind of selecting Kirchhoff to be the colorist, or how, how did that kind of work out? Because um, obviously you have a very yeah, defined I, style, and because you've been doing it all on your own, so how do you find someone to kind of come in and, and emulate without totally copying, but being able to achieve the same consistent tone? Well, um, I did a lot of coaching on um, issue two, and then on issue three, um, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's a, a, a spoiler because we already mentioned it, but we, we switch ships. At that point, I figure it's he can just do whatever color theory he wants to do because we're in a different setting. Hmm. Um, so I, I just let him do his own thing. We have we definitely have different styles um, and, and different ideas for color theory, and that's fine. The reason I, I did um, actually suggest him, and the reason was we were doing a signing together. We both had worked on Star Trek books at... Um, at Gallifrey, we we're both sharing a table uh, for the signing, and we were just talking about, you know, just talking about the biz, talking about working. And he he had mentioned uh, that he has a you know, um, a method for how he, do, he colors ink wash because a lot of people just slap the color over it on a multiply layer, and it gets kind of muddy and doesn't look right. Uh, and he kind of impressed me when he was talking about that because it sounded thoughtful. It sounded like he knew what he was doing, and I didn't want one of those people to make muddy colors out of my inks. I wanted somebody that would actually do um, proper coloring, that would go into the channels and, and and change the colors but leave the blacks and that kind of stuff. It's a little more complicated than just slapping color over something or, or you know filling in the lines with line art. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remembered that conversation and I talked to Sarah and said, you know, we should get Charlie. He's done Star Trek books and um, I personally know for a fact that he knows how to color this style. So, you know, it's a time saver. We won't have to do tryouts. We won't have to go through people. You know. And it's uh, it's worked out pretty well so far. Hmm. Um, this is probably a question more uh, apt for the Tiptons, but um, 
I, I love uh, the beginning of the issues when they have the uh, the space, the Final Frontier, but it's a, a different opening line, obviously, because it's for the ISS Enterprise. Um, were you in any way involved with the kind of the development of that that opening, or was that purely the Tiptons? Um, no, I wasn't involved. Um, I think it was a Tiptons, or it might have been from. It, it seemed familiar, like because I think it was in the style guide, so it might have been. Oh, okay. Um. It, because, yeah, at the beginning of the style guide started something very similar to that. So they might have even taken some of it from that and then made it their own, or I can't be sure. I know there was something like that in the style guide, and I can't remember. I'm so ashamed. I can't remember the writer's name that we worked with for that. Um, but you know what? I'll have to get back to you on that to know for sure. But if uh, if it's in a Tipton script, I, I guarantee it's the Tiptons. If, if it's not completely theirs then they did something to make it their own because that's what they do <laughs> they, they want to just like lift something just how detailed are their scripts it depends sometimes it's and 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 the question that's actually not the right question the question is do you pay attention to every detail <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i draw what i want artists are notorious for that because you know we know better we're artists <laughs> um but yes, yeah, sometimes it's detailed, um, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes he'll be like, "You know what to do here." You know, it's, we've worked together before enough times where um, both Dave and Scott know me, and I know them, and, and it becomes a little more comfortable. And um, there are sometimes I know if they do put a, 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 an excessive amount of detail into a panel description, I'll know there's a reason for it because they don't just do that for everything. They're not like it's not they don't do like the Alan Moore script. But on the occasion when they do, I know then take it seriously because mm. you know they're not always doing that. Um, but there are sometimes like um, where he'll actually say in the script, "JK, you know, he'll actually talk to me and say if you got a better idea for this or if you think you can figure out a way to do this." Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, City on the Edge of Forever, the um, the page where. Uh, Beckwith gets trapped in the supernova and burns up over and over again, mm-hmm. and it resets and he burns up. He wanted to fun- he he described a panel layout, um, a vague panel layout, and find a way to do this. And he says, like, if you can think of a better way to do it. And whenever that happens, I immediately call him up. It's not like we, they, you know, they they're both more or less local, so we can always at least chat on the phone, if not meet up, and talk about these things. And um, when given the freedom, I'll come up with something. If and if they give me something detailed I'll make sure I do what what they ask basically but I mean the whole thing's kind of kind of fluid too because like if I I, I I can always call them up and say like hey, hey this panel could we break it up to two panels and do it this way I just think it'll work better or there's not enough room on the page or, or if something comes up and there's a reason you know it's 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 a collaboration okay and I'll close it out with two really quick questions um, in issue two of Mirror Broken um, behind, uh, there's a, a sequence where you have Picard, Troy, and Data, and they're talking about getting in touch with Riker. And you see a shot at the back behind them, and you have just a bunch of swords on the wall. Um, uh-huh. I was curious, what was your kind of reference point for those swords? Because uh, they're very specific in, in their design. So I'm just curious if you had anything in mind when you were kind of putting those on that wall. No, basically they're just ancient weapons that he's a collector of. You also see, like, a, a 17th century pistol. That's right, um, yeah. I think some of, yeah, some of those swords are um, 
I think there's even like a 18th century Gatlin, early 18th century Gatlin gun or something on a tripod. I, I basically I was just trying to think of what it's it's sort of a, a Star Trek tradition that the captains always collect antiques, mm. and I know. Uh, in Rather Khan, you see Kirk's apartment. He had a bunch of weapons that he collected. And that was his antiques. Um, Picard's more of a bookman. Um, but in this universe, I figured it would be weapons. So I just kind of, I think I might have actually subconsciously at least gotten that idea from Kirk's apartment in, in Rather Khan. Because okay. he had a bunch of guns on the wall and stuff. And mm-hmm. Kind of a rustic look. Um, but uh, yeah, I just it seemed like this Picard would still have the same fascination with antiques and, and collecting and uh, a connection with the past, and but his obsession would be more on, um, you know, the, the military past. So that's really all that was about. Okay. Uh, and my last, it's more of a comment than a question, actually, is when uh, when they men- when they first mention Riker and that they want Deanna to reach out to him, um, I love, they you show a picture of him on their screen, and I love that picture because it's very kind of classic, kind of swarmy Riker, um, and I just was curious <laughs> if that was any, any particular image of Jonathan Frakes that you were kind of pulling for that particular image, because it looks like less of a, a Starfleet, or not Starfleet, but Terran Command um, kind of image that they would have in their databanks, and more of a like Facebook picture, like, look at me, like kind of winking at the camera. And I, <laughs> and I just thought that was priceless. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, I always thought of it as like a candid shot, like 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 a spy camera got a picture of him while he was hitting on some chick in a bar or something. You also notice he he didn't have the scar yet in that picture, so it was an oh, old picture. That's right. Yeah, he has both eyes. He doesn't have the scar. So definitely, it, it, oh, definitely like the happier times. Definitely the picture he would put on a on a profile. Yeah, <laughs> the one he's more proud of. That's his yeah his Facebook selfie. <laughs> Well, J.K., thank you so much for taking so much time out of your day to uh, talk with us about these books. Um, I'd love to have you back on when uh, Mirror Broken is actually over uh, to kind of uh, yeah. go, go through uh, the last... Why don't we get the... Because I noticed you had a lot of uh, story questions. We'll get the uh, tip-tens. That'd be great. Maybe all of us will come on and, and, and talk about it, and they can answer a lot of stuff I, I can't. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that would be fantastic. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm such a huge fan of this of the current book, even though I got the name wrong at the beginning. Um, also, <laughs> also really enjoyed City on the Edge of Forever. So, I mean, your Star Trek work has just been so incredible. Obviously, you do a lot of other things, but something about your Star Trek work is just so... You do such an amazing job of bringing it to life and making it so true to the original source material, but also something new. And that's not easy to do. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Oh, by the way, I just found out I'm going on the cruise. I'm a guest on the cruise. I'm going to be doing live painting on the Star Trek cruise, January 2018. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I'm going to be sailing with Sulu. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you ever think that you'd be able to say that? <laughs> Not in a million years. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll make sure to have you on uh, when the book wraps up. All right. Thanks again for having me. Man. Thank you.